I honestly try to bring in every type of movement I can into my class. And I ask my students, what do you need for me to help you with your learning? And every class is different that I've taught. And so this year, my class, they need all the hands-on. They need to be out of their desk. They need to be moving. I need to create a symbol or hand gesture with every single thing I teach to help them engage and to remember their learning. Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Otsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. I am your host, Tracy Otsuka. Thank you so much for joining Hello, I am your host, Tracy Otsuka. Thank you so much for joining me here for episode number 162 of ADHD for Smartass Women. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter over at tracyoutsuka.com. My purpose is always to show you who you are and then inspire you to be it. In the thousands of ADHD women that I have had the privilege of meeting, I've never met a one that wasn't truly brilliant at something. Not one. So for all of these reasons, I am just delighted to introduce you to Kathleen Germs. Okay, Kathleen, is that how you pronounce your name? It is. And it's hilarious because I'm a teacher too and in a pandemic. So it's just, yeah. (laughs) Oh no, that's like being named Delta, right? (laughs) Totally. Yeah. Um, that poor airline. Anyway, Kathleen <laughs> Germs is a second grade teacher who specializes in teaching reading. One night, I saw a message on Instagram from her. She had thanked me for my work and introduced herself, and she told me what she did. So I went over to her Instagram feed, and I was instantly smitten with her. Her ADHD strengths, they just jumped off of all of her posts. And all I could think of is... Gosh, I wish all of my son's teachers had Kathleen's joy because it just up and smacks you in the face. (laughs) And I am certain that her kindness, humor, and concern for her students helps them learn and increases their love of learning. She is such a bright light and clearly passionate about changing the way that the school system works. Kathleen uses her social media platform to share reading tips, 
but she also shares her life, the good, the bad, and the ugly. She's been diagnosed with anxiety, depression, and ADHD, and she works hard to break the stigmas that are attached to mental health by sharing her stories with others to normalize it. Kathleen is 33 years old. She's been married for 14 of those years and has two boys, Luke, who is six, and Odin, who is three. She grew up in Saskatchewan, Canada, that's a mouthful, (laughs) in a tiny duplex with seven family members. She strongly believes that her childhood and mental health diagnoses have made her an empathetic, intuitive, and creative person and teacher. I always talk about how our best purposes are those that give meaning to our past, and Kathleen is truly the best example of this. So Kathleen, welcome, and did I get all of that right? You did. Oh, Tracy, that was such a sweet introduction. Thank you so much. Well, absolutely. (laughs) So I want to talk about your ADHD diagnoses first, if that's okay. For sure. So can we go way back when, and let's start with your childhood. So, you know, what's interesting about me is I actually only got diagnosed a couple of weeks ago. So I feel like I'm on this major learning journey where I'm like, my entire life makes sense. Mm. My entire childhood, everything makes sense. So when I was younger, I always kind of knew that there were different things about me and my friends would say, oh, that's just Kathleen. And now I'm like, nope, that was actually my ADHD. <laughs> yes, I'm silly and and I have weird tendencies and things like that. But, you know, the excessive talking, interrupting, the forgetting and losing everything, you know, the fact that I had to study way harder than all of my friends to remember anything, you know, the empathy I had for others. I was so hyper-focused on how everyone felt that I could read a room as soon as I walked into it. I'm like, that person's sad, that person's happy. And and, you know, just so many things, biting my nails constantly. Uh, oh, my goodness. The anxiety that came along with the fact that I could never stop my brain. It's just running a million miles an hour. So you said that you were a family of seven. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious if your siblings experience the same symptoms. I would say that four out of the five of my siblings would have ADHD. Uh, One is diagnosed. The other two, I would say a thousand percent have ADHD. And what about your parents? Possibly one parent, but not the other. You know, the excessive talking, the forgetfulness, the, you know, all of that that comes with it. I would say one parent for sure. So were you shamed for your ADHD or were your parents pretty good about, um, well, obviously they didn't know you had ADHD, but you know, Mm -hmm. were they pretty good about just your behavior and what Kathleen was like? I mean, I would say my, it's really hard for me to say because I black out a lot of my childhood because it was so traumatic. Um, and I'd really, that's a really deep question and I would have to take some time to think about it. I just feel like we were never really accepted in our home and we were constantly shamed for everything. So I don't know if it was specifically because of my ADHD or just because of, you know, the narcissism and stuff that one of my parents exhibited. Um, I just feel like maybe that was their personality towards everybody, you know, shaming everyone. So I don't know if it was specifically because of my ADHD. So there... I don't know how else to say it, but 
poor behavior mm-hmm. wasn't directed at you specifically. It was just kind of how they dealt with all your siblings and it sounds like kind of life in general. Yes. So you're a school teacher, so that must mean, okay, wait, let's back up a little bit. So talk to me about, it sounds like there was a lot going on in your family home. What about at school? How was school for you? You know, I was very social, so I had a lot of friends, but sitting in class, I remember it was really, really hard to focus. My teachers would have no idea that I couldn't focus. I could sit and stare at them, but I was thinking of every other thing. I could never retain what someone was teaching me. I'd always have to go home and read it over again, like quite a few times. And I never understood how my friends could just so easily work through their learning and and remember it right away. I just never understood. And I, I think maybe I obviously talked excessively and interrupted other people and things like that. But I would say school for the most part was great. Minus the fact that I had to work a hundred times harder than my friends just to take in, you know, simple, simple things. And did you think that the reason that was going on was because of what was, you know, what was happening at home, the trauma? Yeah. I thought the trauma was part of it. I thought that maybe I just wasn't as smart. I didn't really understand and did you tell your friends? No. So I didn't no. So did your friends know about what was going on at home? Some of my friends did. Um, I would say my closest friends knew and they were scared. You know, it was my dad who was the abuser and my mm-hmm. friends were scared of him. They felt uncomfortable around him. And I mean, it was my dad is very charismatic. He can really hide the type of person he is. Uh, so when you first meet him, he can easily manipulate you and everyone would think he's kind. So it wasn't, it was only my closest friends who knew because that's when my dad would show his true colors. Okay. So you were able to keep up in school then? Well, let's back up one second. Mm-hmm. Are, have you been diagnosed with inattentive or combined? You must be combined type because you have so much energy and... <laughs> Yeah, I, I would say that I'm combined. My doctor did an assessment on me and that's how we went that route. Um, I didn't go through a psychologist and do that whole intensive thing that um, one of my other siblings did. But my mm-hmm. doctor just said, yeah, you're high up on the ADHD. And I was like, oh, wow, okay, this explains my whole life. And then I started listening to your podcast and everything resonated with me. So probably combined type, yep, after all I've learned from you. Okay. And so you were fine during, you were able to keep up in elementary school. Did anything Mm -hmm. change in high school? High school was much harder for me. Uh, Just the concepts were harder. I had so much more to learn. But I think the hardest thing for me was university. My grades really plummeted. You know, in elementary and high school, I was able to manage the 80s, 90s. But when I got to university, it was 60s and 70s in my first two years because the professors don't teach as in-depth for you. And you have to do a lot of that learning on your own. And it was really hard for me to find time because I feel like I never had time because I couldn't manage time. So it was really, really hard in university. And did you go to university with the intention of becoming a teacher or were you in a different major? I knew that I always wanted to do something to make a change in the world and make the world a better place. I That's always been in my heart since I was a little kid. 
I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I thought maybe teacher, maybe nurse, maybe a counselor. And then I took a year off university and I went to China. I moved there and I taught English there and I taught pre-K and kindergarten. And that's when I realized like, this is what I want to do. Okay. So was that after your first year of college? When did you, when did you take off from college? Yeah. So my first year of college was in 2006. And then in 2007, it's really impulsive what I did, but I had a dream one night that I was teaching overseas in China. So I applied <laughs> for my Sir Tessel and I, my first plane ride ever, I just flew over to China and taught English there. <laughs> you are kidding. No, I'm dead serious. And then I didn't realize I wouldn't like flying and I was panicked on the flight. I was like hyperventilating because I'm claustrophobic, which I learned is another thing of ADHD. But yeah, I was so claustrophobic and I wanted to get off the plane. And no, I traveled that 30 hours or whatever it was for first plane ride ever to China. So did you know anybody in China? I had went, went with um, a person that I was dating at the time <laughs> and yeah, we stayed there for six months. So, but no, I didn't know anybody when I went there. It was just this random city. I believe there was about 8 million people there. And I think there was only about 12 people outside of that city that came there. So I think there was only like 12 white people that lived there. So um, was it your intention when you went to China to never go back to university or was it just like, I just need to get out of here and, you know, this sounds appealing. I'm going to go do it. Yeah, pretty much that. And I wanted to see if I liked teaching. So I went and yeah, I loved it. So then I knew I wanted to be a teacher. I knew I was going to go back to university. I just wanted to make sure that I loved teaching before actually becoming a teacher. So what you did was so smart because you connected with your intention. Mm -hmm. So I suspect, you tell me if I'm wrong, that when you went back to school, it was a lot easier because yeah, yeah. there was an end game. Yes. Yeah. I was more motivated. I knew what I was working towards. And then once I got into the college of education, my marks were eighties, nineties again. Yep. So yep. yeah, it's like you said, the hyper-focus. When I find my interest, I excel in it. But yeah. when I'm not interested in it, it's very hard to take, set aside the time to work on things. So was your experience in China just lovely or was it kind of mixed? Oh my goodness. I feel <laughs> like we could do a po another podcast on this. Uh, it was great. Um, I had a lot of culture shock. You know, like the bed was just wood. It was just a piece of wood. Mm. Um, that was culture shock for me at age 18. And then how like you would shower onto the ground right beside the toilet. Um, it was like the shower was right beside the toilet. That was mm -hmm. different for me and how there was like where I was, there was like no toilet. So you just like go to the bathroom in a hole wherever you go. And there's like no toilet paper. So you have to bring toilet paper with you in your purse. Uh, so there's some culture shock, but um, overall a good experience until the end um, I actually had a situation where four men tried to kidnap me on my way home from supper. Oh. And yeah, it was horrific. I, like I had, I couldn't sleep for about a year. It was the most awful experience ever. And so what was the deal? They tried to kidnap you because they were going to try to ransom you? Yeah. So um, my mom actually had come down to visit me in China and we went for pizza. It was 6 p.m. at night when we were leaving the pizza place and we were walking past all these stores and some men came running out of the store. There was four of them and they started to chase us. 
And so my mom just held my hand and we started running and she said, if they want your purse, just give it to them. Cause we didn't know why they were chasing us. And then we realized there was a cab driver driving beside us as well. And the men were trying to take me from my mom and throw me in the cab. Oh, so the cabbie was in on it as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh my gosh. But, but you ended up being okay. They never got you. No, like my mom and I fought these men. We fought them off and we ran from them and we basically outran them. That's how we got away. Oh my gosh. I am so sorry. And did they ever catch them? No, like it's just where I was, was very corrupt. Like we ran, we outran them. And then we ended up running into some police officers and we asked them to help us. And they had told us to get into the car. Um, But my mom was like, no, I'd rather you get us a cab and like take us home. But they didn't really speak that much English. And Mm -hmm. the one man was still following us and he tried to even grab me in front of the cops, but they didn't do anything. Oh, Kathleen. That is absolutely terrifying. That's not something that I would have expected in China. Yeah, no, I th- I think, I mean, when you're in the more difficult areas, mm-hmm. uh, I, we, in China, there's definitely not as much uh, freedom as right. there is in Canada, you know, it, in different parts. I, I wouldn't say that's as China as a whole. Like, I mean, China's right. a beautiful place and I would never want to put that um, label on China. It's just in the area I was in, um, I saw a lot of things happen that were definitely not okay. And since this happened to you, have you heard of, um, have you talked to other people who've had similar experiences? I mean, only like one or two people through social media, but no, I don't know anyone personally who's had anything like that. Wow. Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. And I'm so obviously so happy that you're safe and Mm -hmm. they weren't successful. And hopefully someone has, you know, karma, if nothing else. Yes. Yeah. So you came back from China, had a really good experience in that you now knew I'm destined to be a teacher. This is my area of interest and I'm so good at it. Mm -hmm. So college got a heck of a lot easier. Yeah. You said your grades went up too, right? Yeah, a lot. And I graduated with honors. Okay. And when did you graduate? 2011. Oh my gosh, you're such a baby. So anyway, (laughs) congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Um, So what has changed since you were diagnosed? I feel like it's been honestly one of the most positive changes in my life. It's like I know exactly who I am. And, you know, I thought I knew who I was my whole life, but now that I've done so much research and now that I've learned about ADHD in women, I just, I make sense. And I don't feel guilt or shame as much about myself anymore. You know, the fact that I would lose things all the time or how disorganized I was or how I wasn't a super clean or neat person. I carried a lot of shame around that for a long time. And I remember my husband and I used to bicker about that so much because he's like, why can't you just keep the room clean? And I'm thinking in my head, I'm trying so hard. I feel like I'm cleaning all day, Mm -hmm. but now I understand. And now I know my brain is always working a million miles an hour. And if I just focus on one thing as best I can and ignore the rest as best I can, I can get more things done. Um, I'm feeling less overwhelmed now just because I'm learning how my brain works. And 
I'm feeling like, I don't know, I'm just me and it's okay to be me. And there's a lot of people who will understand me who have ADHD and I don't know, it's been really positive. And I also did start medication. Um, in that same day, I started medication. I know I'm really lucky that it works for me, but I remember crying at the end of the day because I couldn't believe how clear life was to me. Like my brain was quiet. Wow. Yeah, it was I couldn't believe it. Um, what are you I've on? on? Pardon me. What are you on? Uh, I started um, Concerta. And was it the first medication, and it just worked, or did you have to go through, you know, a Penelope of them? Is that even a yeah, word? Yeah, yeah, I don't know, but I like it. I think it should be a <laughs> word if it's not. <laughs> Uh, you know, I was the first one I tried. And so the first day was like incredible. And the second day was incredible. But on the third and fourth and fifth and sixth days, I was getting headaches from it. And I'm a big migraine sufferer, but I started a new migraine medication three months ago and I haven't had one since. So I knew this was from the medication. So I think it was a mixture of the medication and me not drinking water. I've heard that you have to drink a lot of water when mm-hmm. you are on ADHD medication. So I upped my water a lot and the headaches have subsided. But I feel like the first few days of the medication, I saw the biggest difference. And now it's just kind of stabilized. So tell me what's different on medication. My brain is quiet. I am able to focus on one thing at a time. I have been getting more things done in this past two weeks than I have in the probably the past year. I just, I used to avoid things so much and now I'm like, okay, I can just do this one thing right now and I'll get that done. And I feel less overwhelmed. Like I know I'll have time to manage and get things done because now I know how to manage my time a bit more. And also my anxiety is almost completely gone so I'm also wondering too, you know, I know I struggle with anxiety, but was a lot of that because of my ADHD and the fact that I could never rest. I've never been able to sit and watch a movie, but now that I'm on medication, I can sit and watch the movie and I don't think about a hundred things. I maybe think about one or two other things. So do you have any side effects um, from the medication or it's just been all positive? Just, just those headaches. Um, and I'm hoping they stay away because I don't want those again. Um, and maybe a slight dizziness if I'm not drinking and eating enough. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is I have to make sure I'm setting aside times to eat because mm-hmm. it's lowered my appetite a bit. But I feel like I'm eating more regular sit-down meals instead of just aimlessly grazing and binging everywhere because that yeah. is what I would do when I was overwhelmed. I would just go into the cupboard and grab whatever chocolate I could have because that was my thing that I thought made me feel better. So it sounds like it's almost even helped with your eating because you're just eating better. Yeah. And I'm just eating. I'm listening to my body now mm-hmm. and I'm not letting my racing thoughts like control me. Meaning when your thoughts would start giving you anxiety, you would eat to calm yourself down? A hundred percent, yeah. I'm so jealous. (laughs) I know. I heard that it didn't work for you. (laughs) I keep thinking, well, maybe maybe I didn't try the right medication, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, I've tried probably most of them. But um, I always in the back of my mind think, well, if you could find the right one, because I had that one experience one day where I tried Ritalin Mm -hmm. and it was, it it was amazing. Mm -hmm. 
how everything slowed down, how my brain slowed down so my mouth could kind of keep up with what my thoughts were. Mm-hmm. And I'm so grateful that I had that experience because if I hadn't had, had it, I think I would have thought, oh my God, this medication, are you kidding? No, it's, you know, it's scary. It's dangerous. You know, look at all mm-hmm. the things that it, you know, didn't do for me. Yeah. <laughs> all the symptoms. But having that one time where it worked, and I know a lot of people would would think, well, that would be terrible. Like, you know what it could do, but it just mm-hmm. doesn't do it, you know, anymore. Mm-hmm. But I'm so grateful for it because I know now what it does for the women that I talk to who it's life-changing for, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and okay. so did yours only work for one day? One, it wasn't even one day. It was one time, right? So it mm-hmm. was a couple hours. And I've told this story before. I was trying to memorize, I can't memorize anything, literally nothing, Kathleen. It's, it's terrifying. If I don't have bullet po- points, I can like show up on stage and I don't know where the hell I'm going. Even if I have, so I was memorizing this speech and it was an important speech and I probably had worked on it for two weeks straight, literally. I knew this thing cold, but the minute I would go, you know, step up on stage and there's even a little tiny bit of anxiety and I'm not, I'm not fearful of public speaking if I have notes, but in this particular instance, I couldn't have notes. And so what happened was I got out there and I couldn't even remember what I was talking about. Not, I couldn't remember the words. I couldn't even remember what the subject was. And so I had to go back into the wings. They had to replay the music. And once they replayed the music, I was then, it was kind of like a a plane and a a runway. I was able to get on the runway and restart and then it, it worked. But even in that instance, I had an outline over to the left in the wings that I could see, not very well, but I could see it. And so that's what I, you know, with the medication, I've always thought that, well, if I could, and I could memorize anything when I was a teenager, it wasn't until 13. So just when I was a teenager, because, you know, I used to be the lead in all the plays and it wasn't just English speaking plays, it was German speaking plays. So I totally was able to do it in the past, but once I hit 13, I was no longer able to memorize anything. So, you know, we know that with hormones and how hormones, especially estrogen affects dopamine, that, you know, that must be what's going on. So I've tried everything from hormone therapy to all the different stimulant medication to other ADHD medication. But that one time with the Ritalin, I was in my car and I could go through my speech I think I went through it five times and did not miss a beat. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's always what I'm aspiring to. Like there must be some way that I can get back to that. So I'm jealous. Mm -hmm. And so did it, sorry, one more question. Did it stop working like for you the next day? Like, yeah. Yeah. And so it just didn't didn't work. work. Cause I do find that mine works really well the first two days and not as well. So I don't know if that's a dosage thing or like what. Probably because it's still working. Yes. I would absolutely talk to your doctor and, Mm -hmm. you know, see if you can change the dosage and see what happens. My problem too is I would forget what Mm. were the symptoms. And so I'd have these elaborate spreadsheets and I'd be writing everything down. And I, I think what happened too is there was so much medication that it completely screwed up my system. 
And I never, I never thought I had anxiety before. I always thought I caused anxiety, but anxiety does run in my family. So what I realized with the medication is it was just making the anxiety worse and worse. And you know, when the anxiety gets worse, the symptoms get worse. And so we could never get the dosage, I think, high up enough so it would affect my ADHD symptoms before the anxiety would kick in and it would just make the ADHD so much worse. So I'm a slow metabolizer, which means that I can only take very small amounts of certainly any medication that affects my brain um, in order for me to just kind of go off the rails. Like I need literally, you know, one-tenth of what, you know, other people need. I can't handle caffeine, all of those things. Mm-hmm. Any, I can't any- either. Really? Yeah. No, I can't. I have to have decaf if I do yeah. have coffee. Yeah. Well, and that's really interesting to me. It's encouraging to me that you're telling me that you struggle with anxiety, you can't do caffeine, yet you have been able to find an ADHD medication that calms your anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it really does. And I mean, I am really like trying to hyper-focus on this medication. And is it working? And I'm really skeptical about things just because I've heard stories of medication not working, but no, it's been great. Like, I mean, the first two days were the most intense. And now I just feel like this morning I woke up, I wake up with anxiety. And then when I take my pill, it goes away. Oh my gosh. So that's a a pretty good indicator that your anxiety is being caused by the ADHD. That's what's Oh, for sure. Mm -hmm. And so for years, did they have you on anxiety medication? Oh yeah, I'm still on it. And you know, I did try to go off medication for a while because I'm a person who exercises lots and I I have other tools I can use, but I tried for a year and I did not leave my room. I was really, really in a dark place. So I had to go back on my anxiety medication and I still am on it. I am, I want to stay on this ADHD, ADHD medication longer before I try to lower my anxiety dose. Yeah. You know, that is really interesting because, yeah, I'd love to know what happens when you finally wean off of it. Does that then increase the effects of your ADHD medication? Mm -hmm. I wonder. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, my gosh. It's so fascinating. But it's also so frustrating that so many of us are put on anxiety and depression medication, which often can make our ADHD symptoms worse because doctors don't know what ADHD even looks like in women. And I'm, I'm encouraged when I hear stories like yours where you went to, it sounds like your general doctor, is that what you said? Yes. And your general doctor, who was a woman, right? Or who is yes. a woman? Yes. She knew about ADHD and what it looks like in women. Yeah, that's really encouraging because they're usually what I hear is the opposite. You know, no, it can't be ADHD. You're too successful. No, it can't be ADHD. You know, um, you you're not hyperactive, you know, all, all of those things. So, um, okay. So I want to talk about your Instagram feed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Why did you start it? And first of all, let's back up a second. How long have you been working as a teacher? So I've been working as a teacher since 2011. So I guess that would be, uh, would that be, that's 11 years. Wow. So you said I'm a baby, but I feel old now. (laughs) I remember when I was your age, I thought I was old too. Trust me, yeah. you are not old. <laughs> You're a baby. So for 11 years, you've been working as a teacher. And when yes. did you start your Instagram feed? So I actually started it and I've had a few different journeys on my Instagram feed. But 
it's most recently, just a couple of months ago, that I started focusing in on my passion, which is education. Uh, prior to that, when I first started it, I had been talking about motherhood and, you know, pelvic floor dysfunction because I had gone through a traumatic birth with my first son. And I was sharing openly about that because I, I was like, a lot of women don't know about like how to fix them or help themselves when they have incontinence or pelvic floor dysfunction and where to go and who to talk to. So I was teaching about that. And then I went into motherhood and sharing about mental health. But I realized everything I did came back to education. Everything was always about me wanting to share my learning with others. So I'm like, why don't I just take my true heart and soul and pour it into my Instagram? I can help families. I can help kids. I can make a difference in the world. I can share my life openly and honestly, and I can make others feel less alone. And I, I feel like that is my passion. So can I ask you, why reading? Why did you become a reading teacher? Did you struggle Um, with reading? I didn't struggle with reading, but I see how many kids struggle with reading. And I see the stigmas attached with kids who who struggle with reading. And I want to break those because it has nothing to do with whether or not a child has a high IQ. It has everything to do with how we are teaching reading. If we teach reading, the way we are supposed to, the way that scientific evidence shows us we need to teach reading, then there will be way less children struggling, even if they have dyslexia, even if they have a learning disability. Um, So I'm really passionate about helping my students. Like I love my students as if they're my own kids. And when I see my students struggling, it breaks my heart. And I know that reading is in everything we do. And I want my children, I call them my children, my students, to be <laughs> successful. And I and I know that they will have a lot of success through, you know, reading, readings in math, readings in science, readings in when you get a job, readings at the store, readings in the malls, readings everywhere. And so kids need that in their you lives. Know, I couldn't agree with you more. And I have been learning a lot about dyslexia because my son was just diagnosed And I am starting to remember all kinds of things in my past and my background around not so much reading, but writing, which can also show up if, you know, you're dyslexic and you have reading challenges. And this is what I I just discovered, and I'm curious what you think about it. It it just, it fascinates me. So if people don't know, um, dyslexia is a learning disability in reading. And so people with dyslexia, they have trouble reading at a, like a regular pace and without mistakes, but they also may have trouble with reading comprehension, spelling, and writing. And as you said, this has nothing to do with intelligence. In fact, there have been studies done that people with reading challenges are at least of average intelligence, but usually they're a lot smarter than that. They're some of our smartest people. And so what I learned is that most people use the left side of the brain to read versus dyslexic readers. They they use the right side of the brain. And it's because humans think in two different ways. There's either verbal conceptualization, where they're thinking with the sound of words, which is the left side of the brain, versus, and you're going to stop me if I'm saying something that you don't agree with. But I really, I I just, you know, I just learned about this and it's just fascinating to me. And I'm going to get to my, there is a point. So, um, and then there's nonverbal conceptualization where you're thinking in mental pictures. So you're thinking in concepts and ideas, which is 
the right side of the brain. Now, verbal thought is linear. It follows the structure of language. So a person will, you know, they'll put a sentence together in their brain one word at a time, and it occurs at the same speed of speech. Versus verbal thought, which, you know, those with dyslexia, and apparently, I'm trying to remember what the number is, 60% of people who have ADHD also have dyslexia. So the verbal, the nonverbal thought is much faster and it's subliminal or unconscious. So it happens so fast that you're not even aware of it when you do it. And so it makes sense to me that dyslexic brains would struggle because they think in mental pictures. But this is the thing that just floored me when I read this. And it makes so much sense. Reading is basically a social construct. We didn't appear on this earth and know how to read. No, somewhere along the line, someone decided that, no, intelligence is going to be synonymous with reading. And that probably happened, you know, right around the printing press and books and, right? Mm -hmm. So it's exactly what you just said about intelligence, right? Mm -hmm. And how whether you can read well or not read well has nothing to do with intelligence. It really is just how the way your brain was formed. So- Dyslexics, they don't struggle with words that describe real things like dog or elephant or, you know, I was flying or I was sleeping that they can see in their mind. It's those words like that and what and your, because you can't visualize those words. And so I'm curious if that is your experience. So, you know, I am not super well-versed in dyslexia. I am in the process of applying to get my certificate, but I have done a lot of learning over the last couple of years. And what I've learned is that reading is not, you do not learn to read through memorization. Um, there's a very small amount of kids who can do that. Very, very small. And we are actually teaching reading incorrectly in the school system. So the biggest piece we were missing is reading with our eyes closed. And I know that sounds crazy, but it's listening to the sounds and being able to take letters away from sounds and tell you what those things are and rhyming and alliteration and clapping out syllables. We miss that piece. And how I explain it is like this. People, like parents and teachers will teach their students their letter sounds. And then they think the next step automatically is let's show them uh, these letters on paper. But we're missing a crucial step. And that crucial step is kids need to be able to put sounds together orally before they can on paper. So if I said to a child, listen to my sounds, I need you to tell me what word this is. And I say, at, they should be able to say cat orally. And most kids can't. They have to be taught that skill so that when they they have a piece of paper in front of them, they know how to do that on paper. And it's the same thing like this. When we teach students math, we teach them their numbers. And we don't just automatically say to them, here, figure out how to add and subtract on your own. But that's what we're doing with reading. We're just giving them a piece of paper and saying, figure it out. We're not teaching them how to put it together. Just like in math, we have to teach kids how to add and how to subtract and how to put those numbers together. But we're missing that in reading. We're not teaching kids how to put those sounds together orally. We're just giving them a piece of paper and saying, figure it out on your own. But if we do that oral piece, it actually will help prevent almost all reading difficulties, even in children with dyslexia. Wow. Well, and I think I think that's even what Orton Gillingham does, right? This multi-sensory approach. And I know when I was on your Instagram feed, what I love so much is how 
you use this multi-sensory approach. So for example, I saw that you were trying to teach kids the word gratefully. And so you would use prayer hands, accepted, you made a hugging motion, raced, you moved your arms and legs really fast. So you're using kind of like all the senses, you know, where mm-hmm. they, they see it, they, I guess they feel it because they're doing it, right? They see it, they hear it. What's the other one? Do, what about touch? Yeah. Yeah, we, we do that lots too. I, I honestly try to bring in every type of movement I can into my class. And I, I ask my students, what do you need for me to help you with your learning? Like I ask them, they are the ones I need to learn from. And every class is different that I've taught. And so this year, my class, they need all the hands-on. They need to be out of their desk. They need to be moving. I need to create a symbol or hand gesture with every single thing I teach to help them engage and to remember their learning. That makes all the sense in the world to me. And I just, again, I just love the energy that you bring to teaching and what you were just saying, I saw on your Instagram feed where you're basically asking the kids, what do you need? Because they know better, right? Mm -hmm. They can tell you, oh, that's working versus no, that isn't working. And usually the sitting in a row in your seat, I mean, that might work for what percentage of kids do you think just listening? Oh my goodness. Like out of my class, I say there's five kids that can do that. Wow. Out of the 24. Yeah. Five. I just think our education system is so backwards. I mean, who, even as an adult, who wants to sit all day? Who wants to sit all day and listen to things that they're not fully interested in? Like, that's why I always think I want my kids to be engaged in learning. I want them to love learning. So I need to ask them what I can do better to help them love learning. I mean, I think about when I've worked for certain bosses, I, I just wish they would have asked me what I needed. I just wish they would have, you know, appreciated me enough to be like, what do you need? And truly listen and then create changes. I just want my students to feel empowered and valued. And like, I mean, I, when my students leave my classroom, the same comment I get from every parent is, wow, you really helped my child develop confidence and build their self-esteem. Like, thank you. Like, you know, and I stay Mm. in touch with my students and I still, students I taught eight years ago, I still visit with them now. Oh, I just absolutely love that. So (laughs) you're in Canada. I'm curious, are you the norm there teaching reading or, you know, okay. So the other teachers are like, what is she doing? I don't know if they think, what am I doing? I think people are starting to catch on a lot of people, but I think at first a lot of people are like, Hmm, what is this? I know that some of the things I do are still not looked highly upon. Like I do not agree with memorizing spelling words. I do not agree with giving kids random spelling tests. I don't agree with any of that. Kids forget these spelling words two weeks later. It's so much pressure on them. You know, if they learn the word walk, well, that they'll remember it for two weeks and forget it. But if you teach them the patterns and you teach them the sounds, they can translate that learning to hundreds of words, hundreds on their own independently. So I feel like I'm still on my own in that more so. Just certain things I do where I, I'm very not following the old school things. And so is your administration really good about that? Do they, you know, support what you're doing or do they get frustrated with you? <laughs> no, they. I'm actually very lucky. My vice principal is, she was a resource teacher for years. And she is actually 
in full support of everything I'm doing. And she is like so excited about it. And, you know, at my school division, I have the most incredible literacy consultant who like, oh my goodness, she is the smartest person when it comes to teaching reading. And she has been like my guide through all of this. And I have just, I have this wealth of knowledge now and yeah, I have a lot of support. I do now. I I don't think I did when I first started like this, but I do now. I also noticed the other day that um, you created a lesson um, where you were talking about mental health with your students. And then you were sharing strategies to feel better. Like, I guess every day they have to name one thing they're looking forward to. Then they have to say two positive statements about themselves. They have to list three things they're grateful for and so on and so forth. So what made you do that? Oh my goodness. Well, I always bring mental health into my units when I'm teaching because I just feel like, you know, I was that little girl in school that didn't know what mental health was. And I think that would have helped me along my journey a lot. It would have just made me feel open about talking about my struggles. And I just feel like it would have made a difference in my life. And I feel like there's such a stigma with mental health still that if I can work with my students at a young age to help them talk about their feelings and you know, to teach them that if they need to see a counselor, it's okay, you know, to break those stigmas, then I mean, I want to, I want to make a difference in their lives, not just for this year, but for lifelong. And I want to help them learn to regulate their emotions. I know with my six-year-old, he struggles with it. And so I know how much he listens to his teacher about things. So I'm like, well, why don't I bring this positive part into their life and help them really regulate their emotions and, you know, build their self-esteem too, because they also have to list things they love about themselves too. No, that sounds amazing. And especially if at home, they're not doing it, they're not learning these Mm -hmm. skills. So I am curious, what is it about you and your ADHD that makes you so good at what you do? I feel like it's the reason I'm good at what I do. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's made me aware of everything around me, that I am so, you know, hyper-focused on how everyone's feeling. And I'm very intuitive. And so... I know when a lesson's going bad. I know when it's going really well and I'm able to adapt really quickly. I also think with my ADHD, I can gather quick thoughts easily. Like I can, I don't stop talking. So I'm engaging my students and I'm also moving a lot. I'm getting in there and I'm using action and I have these hyper tendencies and I can be really silly and goofy and dance around. And I'm kind of animated when I teach And I feel like that gives me a strength. And I feel like too, with my ADHD, it's really helped me think about how others feel and focus on how do I need to teach this in a way that they will understand? I don't know. I feel like now that I'm learning about ADHD, it's pretty much the reason why I'm like such an excellent teacher. Well, and I love that you can say that, that you recognize how good you are. One of the things you've said a couple times is you talk a lot, and this is my observation, (laughs) and I just want to offer it to you. You don't. You have amazing guardrails around how you deliver information. (laughs) You're not all over the place. So I think that you talk the perfect amount. Thank you. See, and that's probably my insecurity from Mm -hmm. being younger. I'm sure people said, you talk a lot. I was called Chatty Kathy. So I feel like maybe that's some some stuff that, you know, carried, I carried with me from a young age, I guess. Well, and I suspect Kathleen that 
The reason you were talking a lot was because you had so many ideas, you were so smart, and you were so interested, and that's what made you interesting and different, frankly, than your peers. Mm -hmm. And so then your peers are like, well, she talks a lot. Well, she talks a lot. Yeah, because she's so fascinated by life Mm -hmm. and everything that's going around her and wanting to learn and know more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. And it's funny because I'm always researching and learning. And my husband's like, oh my gosh, what are you researching now? I'm like, did you know this? (laughs) It's like, I just feel like I need to learn every day and I need to learn so much and there's not enough time and I need to share my learning. So there's one question that I didn't ask you, but I bet you there are people, um, women listening who are thinking, I want to know about this. Did you get therapy for your trauma? So did you address that? Yes. So at age 15, I went through a really dark place. I was really suicidal. There's just so much trauma in my house. Like I, the things I went through, like the, the mental, the physical, there's so much abuse and, Oh my goodness. I just remember when I was 15, I'm like, I don't, I can't live like this anymore. I don't want to end up, you know, having a family in an environment like this. I want to be different. I don't want to live like this anymore. So I started counseling at age 15 and actually still see the same counselor. So I'm 33 now. So it's been years that I've been going to therapy and I go consistently all the time. I'm open about it. I love counseling. I wish I could go every week. (laughs) Uh, It's been the greatest thing for my trauma and it's really helped me Uh, learn to love myself and accept that it's okay to be happy. I remember when I first left home, anytime I was just like around people who were happy, I felt so uncomfortable. It was like, I only felt normal and chaos because that's all I knew. Yeah, And so it took me years, probably not till I was like age 24, 25, that I realized it's okay to be happy. And I felt comfortable when I was in you know, healthy situations. So my husband helped me lots with that too. But prior to that, I only felt normal and chaos and extremely difficult situations. And it's just so lovely that you're willing to share that. So if someone is in that dark space, they know that there is a way out. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not destined to feel that way for the rest of your life. So I'm curious, you went at 15. Now, And you also said you left home. So how old were you when you left home? I left home when I was 18 to go teach in China. Okay. That's that's when you went. And so at 15, when you went to therapy, did your parents know that you were going? Yeah. So I just have such a complicated history. My mom did help me find a therapist. Um, Oh my goodness. My parents deny what happened to us as kids. Like I think they themselves believe it too. Mm. Um, so it's like, you know, they just completely deny what happened to us as kids and say, we all made it up, but there's five of us and we all five memories. Yeah. 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 Well, I guess that's what they have to believe, right. In order to even be alive, because that's so horrifying that you would do that to your child, children. Yeah. Yeah. It's honestly awful. The things that happened to us. And I would rather my parents be like, you know, yeah, we did do that and you deserved it. than flat out deny it. Like that is so, so manipulative. And so it really affects you psychologically. Sure. Because you're just like, well, am I making this up? You doubt yourself because you know, when you go through so much trauma, you black out some of the memories. So then you do doubt yourself, even though you know full well what happened. Yet your mother 
saw that there was a real problem and mm-hmm. she's the one who said you need to go to therapy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, no, I wanted to go to therapy and she helped me find a therapist. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. So let's end this on a positive note. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. What do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD is? Um, okay. So I think that it would be accepting yourself as you are and knowing that, you know, the things that other people see that are negative about you, like being disorganized or forgetting things, like it's okay to be like that and accepting yourself, finding people who are, who also have ADHD as well and talking to them and working through things, doing your research so you can find out more about yourself so that that does lead to more acceptance. I also think exercise is huge. Like I have to exercise every single day. I would suggest everyone listen to your podcast because some of the things you said, you know, where you say to set one goal a week, that has helped me so much. Just, you know, your tips and tricks on how to manage life with ADHD has been like immensely helpful. And, you know, um, knowing that there's nothing wrong with you if you do have ADHD and talking openly about it is so freeing. And you find that a lot of other people are going through the same thing. Do you have friends now that have come out of the woodwork and, you know, you're, you're all ADHD? Uh, well, one of my best friends I'm certain is, and she thinks she is too. And another one Uh of my best friends too, but they haven't been diagnosed yet. Uh, but I do have some friends like acquaintance friends that do have ADHD and yeah. So they all got diagnosed as adult women. Wonderful. So Kathleen, are you working on something that you want to tell us about? Uh, just anything in general. Yeah. Or can people, you know, if people want to know more about what you do and connect with you, mm-hmm. where should they do that? So either thing. Yeah. So just to my Instagram, Kathleen Germs, uh, I share so much there. You know, my feed is mainly focused on teaching stuff that I do and reading tips and anything I do teaching wise tips for parents and teachers. But my stories, I try to, you know, just share my daily life honest motherhood, you know, mental health struggles. I'm also really passionate about sharing issues in regards to people who are experiencing homelessness or poverty or, you know, racism, all that type of stuff. I like to share my learning in my stories too. So yeah, you can definitely go to my Instagram. Okay. So that's going to be in the show notes. Kathleen, you are such a bright light. And I just want to thank you so much for spending time with us here today. Thank you so much, Tracy. I love talking to you. Also, you have a great presenting voice. (laughs) You really do. (laughs) So I've got a podcast, so I guess it all fits, right? (laughs) It does. Oh yeah. You were born to have a podcast with that voice. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. And that is what I have for you all for this week. So if you like this episode with Kathleen, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. And you know what? Your reviews really help. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. Come join me over at tracyoutsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. 
Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.